0: Right. Well, the last, um, the last few decades have witnessed, I think, a golden age of scholarship on the golden age of Russian fiction of the mid to late 19th century. And this has been especially, though by no means exclusively, the case in the universities of North America. So I'm thrilled to have three uh, stellar professors from the U.S., Yuri Corrigan, uh, Lynn Ellen Pattik, Carol Emerson, joining us alongside, just as excitingly, the novelist Alex Christofi whose book uh, Dostoevsky and Love appeared early this year as a first swallow a of the bicentenary, one which has been extremely quiet so far, it must be said, uh, given Dostoevsky's stature and the amount of people who've been reading and rereading him during lockdown, though the latest big event for the Bicentenary was organized by another of our speakers, or co-organized by Lynn Ellen Patik, a, um, a, co- a conference uh, entitled Funny Dostoevsky, which from what I was able to hear and to attend, um, uh, contained, um, showed that there was more than enough humor in Dostoevsky to be taken seriously, for comedy to be taken seriously by by scholars in a way that it hasn't been in the past. So for this evening's event, I've asked the speakers to speak freely uh, for 10 to 12 minutes or so, each about their own research, um, their own approach to Dostoevsky, so that we get a kind of snapshot of recent, uh, recent research on Dostoevsky but what they find most interesting. I strongly suspect there will be uh, strong links between these these talks. But even if they are just fragile links, um, I'm certain that Carol Emerson, a very distinguished discussant, um, will find them and develop them further. After which, I'll invite the speakers to respond to Carol's comments, and and then we'll open out to general discussion. So we'll begin uh, with Yuri Korrigan, who is Associate Professor of Russian and um, comparative literature at Boston University, and the author of Dostoevsky and the Riddle of the Self, which came out uh, from Northwestern University Press in 2017, a book that made a profound impression on me and many other readers. Uh, For those of you who haven't had the pleasure of reading it, and it really is a delight to read, I'm sure that uh, what we are about to hear uh, will give you a good sense of Yuri's
1: approach. Thank you. And mute. Can I? Am I uh, audible here? Thank you. Thank you so much, Oliver, uh, for inviting us. We're meeting for the first time here uh, today, but uh, we have met previously in what uh, Bakhtin calls great time uh, in, uh, in in the things that we've read and thought about. And I'm uh, just very grateful to be part of this panel of scholars. So I have, I think, about 12 minutes. There's no way that I'll keep to the 12 minutes. So if, if you don't mind telling me when the 12 minutes are up, I'll just stop. Uh, short, but I'll do my best. Um, And what I'll do is I'll I'll just try to give a background to uh, my book. I've been kind of working on Dostoevsky more in the last few years, but I'll just give a background to what um, I covered in my book uh, that came out a few years ago um, as a background to our discussion. So in my book, I, I really had two questions of Dostoevsky, and the first one is the simplest of all. And I think it's a question that many of Dostoevsky's readers share and put in the simplest way. It's why his characters behave so strangely. Um, and they're, they're famous for their, that kind of behavior. And to be more specific, it's the, the strange intensi- intensity of their intimacy. So, for example, when Raskolnikov goes to Sonia and throws himself at her feet and says, tell me what to do and I'll do it. You know, they just met a few days ago. It's not, this is, there's something a little bit uh, unusual about this kind of intimacy. Um, or at the end of The Idiot, when Mushkin lies down on top of Ragozh, or one of them lies down on the other. I can't remember which right next to a dead body in a dark room and starts weeping on the other person's face so that the tears are pouring onto the face of the other person, almost as if on his own face. And, you know, these people also didn't meet each other that long ago. They don't know each other that well. And you sometimes wonder when you're seeing these strange, you know, they're all over Dostoevsky. Sometimes one character will hear another character's heart beating from across the room. Um, You wonder whether there's something else going on, whether as Dostoevsky's characters like to say there's some kind of allegory uh, here. Um, so, in general, I wanted to understand this phenomenon in Dostoevsky where boundaries between oneself and another are confused um, and, and constantly overstepped. Um, so, you know, Bakhtin, Birjaev are among the great thinkers who have explained this by saying that these are novels of ideas. We're not supposed to take these characters as people in the implied sense, that they're carriers of ideas acting out within other time space conditions. Um, Berdyaev says that they're all parts of one personality acting out together, the landscape of a personality, and that's what the novel is. Um, but at the risk of revealing something about myself, these characters never really seemed that strange to me, or at least the company I've kept. The, uh, you know, the, my assumption when reading Dostoevsky is that Dostoevsky was writing about real people as he understood them um, and was able to portray them. And specifically, that he was interested in the ways of human intimacy and about the boundaries between one person and another. And that's at the center of his real, of his philosophical project is the idea of what is an individual personality, where does it end? And he was both very much for the idea of the individual and against the idea of the individual in interesting ways. Um, So the other question, this kind of leads to my second question, is what kind of psychologist is Dostoevsky? He's in that space between the beginning of psychoanalysis and the whole Romantic tradition of, you know, is he a Romantic, is he a mystic? Uh, uh, Nietzsche and Freud are among those who saw him as a major psychologist, a major influence. Um, But there's no real concerted study of his uh, unconscious and what he means by the soul. Um, and I felt that there was a theory there of the unconscious in the Dostoevsky. In Dostoevsky but it's different from from many of these other traditions. Um, so I guess that's that's my second question: is what does the Dostoevskyan psyche look like? What kind of depth depth psychology are we looking at with Dostoevsky? So those are the two questions: the unusual intimacy of Dostoevsky's characters, and how does this help us explain Dostoevsky's uh, uh, depth psychology? So my method was to start with early Dostoevsky, because there's a little bit of a, a disjointedness in Dostoevsky's studies, that Dostoevsky was writing and publishing from his early 20s, um, but we only really pay attention to him from about the age of 43 onwards when he writes Notes from Underground. And because, as most of us know, there's this moment in, in his life where you know he goes off to Siberia, he's in prison and exile, he becomes a Christian, and after that he comes back and, and fights this kind of ideological battle uh, through his novels, you know, against the atheists, the materialists, uh, you know, he becomes a critic of modernity. And um, so my question was, what if there's a continuous story in Dostoevsky starting from the very early works about his view of the psyche, something that would kind of let us allow, allow us to read the later novels in a deeper and more holistic way? So what I found there in early, as I started reading through early Dostoevsky, is that these patterns of intimacy are just everywhere. And those those first 10 years or nine years of his writing, it seems that that's one of the, the central themes. You have all those things I mentioned, people crying on each other's faces, people throwing themselves on each other, asking others to make all their decisions for them. And what's fascinating about early Dostoevsky is it's actually in early Dostoevsky that he explains it to us, that he tells us why they're acting in this way. And uh, I still remember reading Mietrich Kanyezvanova seriously for the first time, maybe even for the, maybe, yeah, for the first time. He writes this when he's 28 in 1849. And here you have this young girl with a terrible, tragic personal history, which he tells us, whose mom dies horrifically. She's reeling in the aftermath. She keeps seeing the dead body of her mother, the icon, and she keeps remembering how her psychopathic stepfather told her to pray at the foot of her mother's corpse. And and it's funny that here, 40 years before the sciences of the mind, Dostoevsky very clear-sightedly describes the idea of a psychic wound, of trauma, of a memory too painful to remember. So he says, I'm I'm quoting from my translation here, but such a strange thing happened. It was as if I'd forgotten. This is Nyetajka Singh. It was as if I'd forgotten the ending of what had happened to me with my parents and the whole terrible story. When I came up in my memories to that moment, when I was praying next to my dead mother, then suddenly frost ran across my body. I would shiver, cry out lightly, and then it would become so difficult to breathe that my whole breast would ache and my heart would thump so powerfully that I would run out of the corner in fright. So what you have here, decades before the theorization of trauma in Europe, you have this clear-eyed description of a wound in memory an inability to remember. And because of the pain of remembering, remembering, the need to shut down one's interior space. So they say to they say, pray. And she says, I can't. When I lie, when I, whenever I try to turn inwards, I see the icon, I see the dead body. It's too painful. So what does she do? She finds these other children that she can make into substitutes for the inner space that she herself can't access. So she finds a boy who tells her all his memories and she looks after him and conquers him. And she, he becomes like her his ex, her external soul. It's hard to have your own soul. It's hard to have your own memories. It's easier to manage somebody else's soul. And this becomes very important for, for later Dostoevsky, the idea of an external soul. It's also, uh, she finds another child who watches her all the time and who makes her decisions for her and becomes like an external mind. These are kind of the, the, the uh, terms I came up with while reading early Dostoevsky. The, the, the personality becomes, um, enacted externally. Uh, you have one character, this is how Dostoevsky conceived of his novels, you have one character who has no soul or no functional soul. It's too wounded. She turns the world around herself into a shadow architecture of her own personality. And, uh, and then you start looking at all the other stories in early Dostoevsky, and you see that Dostoevsky is exclusively interested in characters with horrific personal histories that they refuse to remember, uh, that they refuse to reflect in any deep way, they think constantly, but not in that way that that turns backwards towards memory, and this locks them in external space. So you have what, what you can call a psychic fugitive. This is Dostoevsky's character, somebody in flight from the soul, uh, from the contents of the soul, and f- in flight always from shtota, something something inward. So, so that was kind of what I found in early Dostoevsky, this image of the psychic fugitive, in flight from something oppressive, from a terrible memory. Um, creating oneself in external space, is desperate to remain in external space. So this is not bad, really, for a novelist in his 20s, who we would have never paid attention to if he died in Siberia. Um, uh, You know, he invented trauma, developed a novel around the question of how does one reclaim the erased and diseased space of soul, of the inward? Um, So then I turned to the big novels, and uh, it was very exciting to read them in this light for me because he, this uncredited discovery of trauma that Dostoevsky makes in, in the 1840s, it becomes his diagnosis of what it means to be modern. So his critique of modernity, as you see in the later novels, is that we are all willful amnesiacs. We're in flight from something, or a he calls it, in the past that troubles us. It's the pain of remembering, but it's more than that. And you, you, know, you go straight to the underground man from Yatichka Nyazvanova, and, and he says, I cursed the past, I scattered it to dust. But he remains oppressed by the shtote, he says, something, shtote, it would not die within me in the depth of my heart and conscience, it did not want to die, and expressed itself in a burning anguish. Something kept rising up, rising up in my soul continually with pain, and he calls it a living pain in my heart, in my memory, in my soul. And how do you make it stop? And he tells us, I've been see, I've been stopping these elements from rising up my whole life. And I came up with two really good ways. And one is furious intellectual activity, reading, dreaming, that kind of stuff. And the other is uh, prostitutes, is glomming myself onto others in perverse ways. So these kind of overreaching moments of intimacy. And it's interesting that the intimacy is always with strangers, because intimacy with somebody that you go a long way back with could stir those deeper waters. You want to stay in the shallows by all means. Um, And here's the big difference between early Dostoevsky and late Dostoevsky. And this is where it gets interesting from Dostoevsky as a philosophical religious thinker, that that as moderns, we medicate our anxiety. We try to stop it from rising up onto the shores of consciousness. But what we're actually medicating for Dostoevsky is not just anxiety, not just memory, but the deeper memories of the civilization as a whole that we carry within us things that don't want to die. And beyond that, something even deeper than that is what he sees as the presence of of God within us. So his depth psychology is, in fact, kind of a depth theology. If if St. Augustine says, where would I find God? I have to go back through my memories to find God. Well, what if my memories are things I don't want to even address? What if there's a miasmal swamp somewhere within me as a modern and I can't pass through it? Then I'll be stuck forever in external space. And what Dostoevsky is doing in his novels then is he's thinking about What are the ways, what are the strategies that I can keep myself in the shallows? Um, And that's what modern ideology is for Dostoevsky, whether it's nihilism, atheism, positivism. What all these thinkers who are his ideological enemies agree on is that there is no soul. There is no deeper subliminal foundation for the personality outside of consciousness. Erase the past, burn the past, it doesn't matter. Scatter it to dust. These are all rationalizations of the flight from something inwards. Um, but the past obviously doesn't go away. And all of Dostoevsky's novels, it suddenly struck me reading them in this light, are all about the past coming to get you. That, that the kind of nervous energy that he gets in his characters is all from this kind of this battling, this theomaki battling God, battling the depths. So this is the nervous energy. The, the underground man is visited, visits his school friends by accident and sends him into a hysterical tailspin. Raskolnikov finds out that his family's coming to visit him. Mushkin comes home to Russia from Europe. Stavrogin comes to his hometown. The brothers Karamazov come back to the scene of their own troubled childhood. So in each case, that's how Dostoevsky... that's, That's the kind of story that he's interested in. Somebody turns backward. It starts to rise. Something starts to rise, and then they have to fight it. And do I still have two minutes maybe just to finish this thought? So if you take Raskolnikov, for example, why does he murder the old lady? So there's the, there's, the, um, there's the ideological way. And you know before I read early Dostoevsky, I, I would teach it that way. I still do in a sense, but he's trying to be a Superman, a Napoleon. It's a philosophical test. And in some ways it's true, but it's also a confabulation. And he keeps saying that he himself doesn't believe that story, that there were other reasons. And if you have early Dostoevsky in mind when you're reading Crime and Punishment, you see it from the very first page. He's oppressed by something. It's rising up. He wants to stop it. And at first you think, well, that's the idea of the murder, but it's actually the idea of the murder that he's forcing himself to think about all the time as a kind of decoy. Um, And so then all of a sudden he reads his mom's letter. It really starts howling. The dreams start coming and he's got to make it stop. And, and, you know, the the image of, of Raskolnikov's personality is him up at his room. The door is not closed fully. There's a, that's in his dream. And down below in the farthest depths, there's the landlady, the proprietary, the proprietor of the edifice, the soul is howling out. This is his dream. And somebody's beating her and he wants it to stop. He's terrified. He wants to close the door. But that's the problem with consciousness. You can't quite close the door from those lower depths. And all transcendence, there's no way up. You're in a small room. All transcendence would mean going through that swamp into the depths. Um, And so the crime punishment is about the strategies to quell the depths, right? You find an external mind, cleave to someone else, make the part of you that you want to excise into something external, try to kill that or abuse it, whether it's Sonia or the the pawnbroker. Uh, Circumscriptive ideology is a very good way to erase the depths. Fill your head with ready-made ideas. You won't have to think. You can replace your personality with artificial thoughts. Drugs, alcohol are good. That's more mama, a lot of uh, uh, game. And and then ultimately the best way to medicate uh, the rising of the insurgent God within your soul is an act of extreme violence. And you notice with Raskolnikov that he's relieved after the murder. That he says, you know, now I have something else to think about. I, now all that stuff that I used to think about, that's all in another planet. And towards the end of the novel, and I think this is why I should probably stop. Right? Am I? I'm sure I've gone through twelve minutes. I'll just make one final point, and then we'll come back to this in the discussion. But. Um, I think why Dostoevsky's ideological readers, whether it's Camus or Sartre or Bakhtin or Joseph Frank, that they don't like the epilogue. And I think it's because they don't understand it, at least as far as I can tell. The, it's, they think, well, you know, one thinks, well, he tried to go beyond good and evil. And then he retreated back into the Christian fold because he couldn't bear it. Dostoevsky's looking for consolations in Christianity. But that's not the story. The actual story of crime and punishment is that here you have a person who's been trying to defend himself against the howling within him. For 400 pages, he did everything to medicate it, and it even says, you know, he was oppressed by something. It wasn't getting caught. It, he wanted porphyry. He wanted something to distract him from that deeper thing. And at the end, all of a sudden, he's he's tired of resisting. It takes over him, and you see that first el- that first instance in Dostoevsky where somebody actually comes face to face with those elements that are rising up. Um, so, so I guess that for me, you know, I started with Dostoevsky's depth theology and or psychology, and it kept becoming a kind of a depth. Uh, theology as a, maybe an alternative uh, to uh, psychoanalysis. We can talk maybe about what kind of person needs Dostoevsky in-depth uh, theology, but th- that's maybe for another discussion. I'll stop there. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Um, really valuable, to those of you who have read your book, is a really valuable um, addition to, to, to that book, where you don't actually talk about crime and punishment specifically, it's deliberately, in a way, I think, um, all, all that much, um, perhaps because it's, it's so widely discussed already. Um, what you just described, the kind of visual metaphors of Raskolnikov in his room at the top, and it reminded me of the um, drawings of Mikhail Shemyakin, in particular, the the, the late, well, late Saved artist. I encourage everybody to seek them out as a kind of counterpart to your study. That that was was wonderful, thank you. We'll turn now to um, to Lynn, Lynn Allen-Patek. Sorry, I've had one message in the chat asking me, can he be made louder? This is a question many people have asked before, so I will try to speak louder. I hope I'm, I hope I'm audible. Am I audible? Can I have a nod of the head or yeah, just about? Good. So um, uh, Lynn Ellen Patik is, is Associate Professor of Russian at Dartmouth College. Um, it's not very often that one necessarily wants to quote from a home page of a speaker, but in this case it was too interesting uh, not to. Uh, Lynn writes, I very broadly specialize in Russian studies, which encompasses anything having to do with Russia, but my current interests revolve around political communication in its many forms and cultural representations. Increasingly, I'm intrigued by tactics and devices, that is, questions of formal method and technique involved in art and politics. All sorts of things there we might want to come back to later. But, uh, Lynn's most recent publication on Dostoevsky is entitled uh, The Dark Side of Dialogue. Dostoevsky in Provocation and the Provocateurs Karamazov, which was published in a Bicentenary special issue on Dostoevsky uh, this year in the Slavonic and Eastern European Review in London, um, edited by Bilal Sadiki and uh, Sarah Young. So uh, yeah, without further ado,
2: over to you, Lynn. Thank you. All right, thank you so much, Oliver, for inviting me. Um, So I am going to take the opportunity not to talk so much about uh, my first book, Written in Blood, um, but, And and as Yuri was talking about memory and forgetting, I was thinking that, oh, my goodness, Oliver asked me to talk about my work in general. And I've completely forgotten about Written in Blood. Um, Maybe I'm repressing it. Maybe it's some sort of traumatic wound. Um, I I want to talk to you today about my work in progress. Um, And the article that was published in in SEER is sort of the flagship article. Um, But of course, it's still a work in progress. It's under development even as we speak, and so I would love to have your feedback on it. It is more of a prepared paper than Yuri's talk was, um, so please bear with me in that. So the world, as Dostoevsky's Underground Man imagines it, is shining perfection. Everything is arranged ideally, precisely, and mathematically calculated in accordance with the laws of nature so that, quote, there will no longer be any actions or adventures in the world. End quote. Against this flawless but ho-hum backdrop, an unnamed and enigmatic figure emerges. Quote, Some gentleman of ignoble or better of retrograde, enduring physiognomy. End quote, who, with arms akimbo, declares, "Well, gentlemen, why don't we reduce all this reasonableness to dust with one good kick?" for the sole purpose of sending all these logarithms to the devil and living once more according to our own stupid will, end quote. This walk-in character with a bit part is key to one of the yet unresolved problems in Dostoevsky's creation. He's no ordinary rebel because if he were without wasting words, he would certainly have at it and smash all that galling glitter to smithereens himself. His primary purpose in this hypothetical scenario is to address us all and to incite us to do something. Assuming a cockily contemptuous pose, he goads us to do it with him, or perhaps even for him, to coax or ensnare our stupid will so that our will is his will oh, and okay. we assume the responsibility and blame.
0: It's not the if-
1: solution. It's, it's, it's-
2: and in this case, there is a special irony. If you won't comply. In the name How of our you own, own...
1: Just punch the nanny,
2: um, and capricious desire, actually... he harnesses our will to his dubious purposes. Now, this walk uh, character is a distillation. Should, should I stop? I think we're having some audio interference. I'm
1: just I'm... I just muted the person. It's okay. A
2: Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if that was a provocateur or, but I'll go on. Um, this walk-on character is the purest distillation of provocation in Dostoevsky's fiction, the incarnation of his idea. A provocateur is one who emerges from nowhere and acts, but obliquely and not directly, by addressing themselves to others and making those others react. In Russian provocation in the sense of provocatia is a term of relatively recent French vintage with its etymological origins in the Latin verb provocare to call forth, but its usage in political intrigue and revolutionary struggle, agent provocateur in the French and provocateur in Russian has become notorious. During the Putin era, The word provocatia has been revived and used in information warfare as an allegation against domestic and international political enemies, but also in any situation where the speaker wants to place the stigma of duplicity, bad faith and blame on the opponent. A provocateur, often under cover or false pretenses, plays both sides of the fence of a conflict, and his or her duplicitousness or ambiguous actions lead his target to expose themselves and fall into their adversary's trap. An individual who provokes is a provocateur, if and only if provocation is recognized and attributed as a macro strategy. In some cases, it is even a performative macro strategy that involves explicit self-fashioning as a provocateur, in which case the designation which is otherwise a stigma becomes a badge of honor. The title of my manuscript in progress is Dostoevsky's Provocateurs. And this suggests that a provocateur is a character in Dostoevsky's fiction, with or without the ignoble and retrograde physiognomy, um, which can be pinned down and identified as such. Well, we will certainly encounter some characters in Dostoevsky's fiction who fit the bill, they are but incarnations of Dostoevsky's own artistic macro strategy that deploys provocation as a ubiquitous and multivarious device. To recognize pe- provocation as the bedrock of Dostoevsky's artistic method or poetics sharpens Bakhtin's hazy concept of dialogue, which has been both incredibly productive and problematic for Dostoevsky's studies, and it recuperates Bakhtin's own understanding of the centrality of provocation to Dostoevsky in dialogue and his artistic creation more generally. The number of occurrences of the word provoking, provoke, pr- provocation and provocative in problems of Dostoevsky's poetics clearly signals Bakhtin's awareness of its importance. Although um, he takes its functioning as self-evident and leaves it unexamined and undefined. For Bakhtin, quote, the entire artistic construction of the Dostoevsky novel performs provoking functions, end quote. And yet, Bakhtin refrains from promoting provocation to the place that it deserves in his theory of dialogue. Partly, I think, and perhaps uh, Carol would agree, because Bakhtin's own conflict of, uh, because of uh, Bakhtin's own conflict aversion. Conflict is aversive because it is emotionally stressful and often entails harm to the parties involved or to their interests. Indeed, the most ethically objectionable um, dimension or aspect of provocation, and there are many, is its violation and harm of others. Um, and this is diametrically opposed to the Bakhtinian idea of maximally empathetic and responsive dialogue. But without a thorough grounding in provocation in Dostoevsky's art, we simply lack a concept with the analytical purchase to make sense of conflict in Dostoevsky, how it functions and what is at stake. Now I'll cut to the chase and make the grand statement about what the stakes of conflict are in the Dostoevsky novel, their truth and power. Provocation is a means to achieve both. In his brilliant essay, The Short Breath of Provocation, the German sociologist of power, Rainer Paris, uh, provides a definition and a model of what I call adversarial provocation. Paris approaches all provocation as adversarial, whereas I do not. Provocation is bigger than that. It is the prima mobile or the big bang, the blast of pure communicative energy, which gets things going by hooking the other into the communicative situation. Paris's model of provocation as a tactic of a social movement against state power or the establishment works wonderfully well as a model for interpersonal conflict in Dostoevsky within the world of his fiction, but also for the fiction's orientation toward an effect on the reader. Paris defines a provocation in a very specific way as a, quote, purposely committed but unexpected violation of norms that is intended to draw an an opponent into open conflict and elicit a reaction that in the eyes of a third party adjudicator morally discredits and unmasks him, end quote. For Paris, a classic provocation consists of five elements. One, norm violation. Two, surprise. Three, conflict orientation. Four, reciprocity or the ability to elicit a reaction. And five, unmasking. Not all norm violations are automatically provocations according to Paris. Only those which are addressed in the sense that at the core of the violation is an insult or a threat to the target's personal identity. The first four elements constitute the necessary means of provocation and the context, but the objective of provocation, unmasking and exposure is what makes provocation such a key mechanism in Dostoevsky's art. The provocateur does not expose the other, rather by his own overreaction to the provocation, the other discredits and unmasks him or herself. In re- retaliating, he or she involuntarily betrays himself and appears as the guilty party in the conflict. Provocations may occur interpersonally in the dyad, but public provocations, which Bakhtin sees as carnivalesque scandals, are the more aggressive in that, quote, the provocateur parades the other out and drags him into the light. All should see what kind of person he is. End quote. The provocation draws the third party into the emotionally charged conflict and polarizes it, thereby creating a power source for the provocateur by winning him sympathizers and allies. Ultimately, the third party or public opinion determines where the guilt lies and who the provocateur is. Both parties must vie to have their frames of reference, their narratives, or as Paris puts it, their reality construction, adopted as the truth of the conflict by the adjudicating third parties. Dostoevsky creates these third parties in the world of the novel but they are most frequently what I refer to as dummy third-party adjudicators. Um, Dummy in the sense of mannequins, not stupid. Um, They're merely fictional stand-ins for the real third-party adjudicator, which is the reader. Now in the Dostoevsky novel, there is no safe birth. While the moral and cognitive burden of the third party adjudicator is a heavy one that falls on the reader, um, it is absolutely possible for the unwary reader to themselves become the target of the novelistic utterance as a provocation. In which case it is the reader's own identity and reality construction that is placed in jeopardy. Why all this jeopardy and conflict? There are many possible answers to this question But the first is that Dostoevsky intuitively operated with the same algorithms as our social media companies. Conflict and jeopardy, especially where truth, ultimate values and identity are concerned, provoke high reader engagement. Our media system is propelled by irritation, according to the sociologist Niklas Luhmann, which in many ways is synonymous with provocation. But the deeper historical reason has to do with modernity's truth establishing and legitimizing procedures, which are fundamentally adversarial. Um, Although Dostoevsky imagines non-adversarial, utopian and dystopian alternatives. Mikhail Bakunin's creative destruction applies to Dostoevsky in dialogue better than Bakhtin's dialogic construction of truth or at least Bakunin is more forthright. The dialogic construction of truth also entails the dialogic destruction of another's truth. Two truths cannot stand. They vie with one another, they provoke and expose one another. The reader adjudicates and determines who is the last man standing, even if it's sometimes a woman um, with Raskolnikov prostate at uh, Sonia's feet at the end of Crime and Punishment. But of course, Dostoevsky, with his mastery of provocative devices, has orchestrated all of this. And so we might conclude that the Dostoevskyan novel as a provocative utterance, despite the hero's seeming autonomy to answer or to react to his author, is a rigged contest. The model of authorship that may best accord with Dostoevsky's provocative practice seems to have more in common with that of the Ur-Provocateur, the Devil, who in The Brothers Karamazov resignedly explains to Ivan that, quote, by some pre-temporal assignment, quote, he serves grudgingly for the sake of events and does the unreasonable on order, end quote. It would be remiss of me to conclude on this diabolical note, though, without observing that the most sensationally successful provocation in perhaps all of Dostoevsky's art is Christ's provocation of the Grand Inquisitor, which is why I refer to provocation as the Faustian function, part of that force that always wills the evil and always produces the good. Thank you
0: for your attention. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Lenin. Apologies for the interference earlier on. Earlier on in your talk, but um, everything seems to be in, in order now. So we'll, we'll um, plenty there for us to come back to, especially with with Carol, of course, a Bakhtin scholar who will, I'm sure, have much to say on this issue of of, um, of the na- of the actual true nature of dialogue in Dostoevsky, which you so interestingly addressed. Um, we'll come to our third our third speaker, so Alex Christofi, now who um, recently became, um, uh, fairly recently became Director of Non-Fiction at Transworld Publishers, so an editor and a publisher as well as a novelist. His first novel, uh, Glass, was published in, in 2015. The hero is called Gunther Glass, an aspiring window cleaner, and it, the novel won the Betty Trusk Prize in, in 2016. This was followed up by the novel Let Us Be True, uh, a title that resonates in the context of Lynn's talk just now, um, Let Us Be True, and then this year, Dostoevsky in Love, um, published by Bloomsbury and described by Douglas Smith, the Russianist uh, who recently um, wrote a biography of Rasputin as a daring and mesmerizing twist on the art of biography. And once again, this, our speaker's homepage is just too good to omit. Uh, there, um, Alex describes himself as a writer and editor living in London, who once accidentally sparked international outrage when I confessed to being a book murderer. Well, Dostoevsky, of course, knew all about bookish murderers. Um, Alex, over to you.
3: Thank you very much. I'm very, very grateful to be invited and uh, it's a great pleasure to be uh, here alongside such uh, distinguished scholars. So um, if it's all right, I'm going to, to use my time today to explain Uh, how I set myself an unreasonable challenge um, perhaps inevitably failed but I discovered something interesting in the attempt. So um, the challenge was to reconstruct Dostoevsky's unwritten memoirs and I'll try to explain why I thought that might have been a good idea Uh, but starting out this way I quite quickly abandoned the traditional biographer's role so as I strove to bring coherence to the project I realised that there was something fruitful in the dialogue between Dostoevsky and myself as arch narrator. By the time I finished, I quite clearly hadn't reconstructed Dostoevsky's memoirs. Um, instead, I now wonder whether my book might better be described as a Dostoevsky in biography. Um, but reading Dostoevsky's letters and notebooks, it, it's clear that he he did mean to write his memoirs. He would sporadically reflected on his past in in the, the years. years up, up, in, in Siberia. In Siberia. But the idea, the idea of his life's life discuss discuss Baikov.
0: Alex, you're somehow breaking up for some reason. I'm quite sure whether you've changed some setting or.
3: Uh, right, I'm going to try again now. How, how's this? <laughs> um,
0: and so far, yep. Yeah.
3: Great. So the so Piotr Sobikov asked him if he'd write his biography. Uh, he was planning a, a series on Russia's great writers, but. Dostoevsky demurred at first. He wrote on 15th of April, 1876 that epilepsy was affecting his memory, Uh, but then he'd apparently returned to the idea. So on 13th of January, 1877, he eventually wrote to Bykov to apologize that he couldn't deliver it. He says, I sense the piece was taking up too much out of me, raising up before me the life I had lived and required great love to carry out. If I am free and well, I will definitely write it because I want to and feel a need to, but when I'll get it written that I do not know. I mean whether we can take Dostoevsky's excuse from face value is hard to say. I, I suspect perhaps he and Anna preferred to keep control of his writing as they had over a writer's diary and, and his other publications at this point. But whatever the reason, uh, the idea continued to preoccupy him and in one of his notebooks on Christmas Eve 1877, uh, which is the 28th anniversary of his his journey to Siberia. He wrote this four-point memo for the rest of my life. He planned it out. Um, He wanted to write a Russian Candide. He wanted to write a book about Jesus Christ. The third point was to write my memoirs, and the fourth was to write the epic Requiem, Um, He ambitious as ever, (laughs) and he put NB. in All this in addition to my new novel and the planned issues of a a writer's diary would take at least 10 years work, and I'm already 56. Sadly, um, his pessimism on this front was well-founded, so by the time he'd finished writing the Brothers Karamazov, he was already in a bad way. Leaning on an old umbrella to walk the hundred paces or so to the neighbouring churchyard to get some air into his lungs, having decided by this time he would only live in apartments within eyeshot of an orthodox church. So he finished a single new issue of a writer's diary after its hiatus, and then on 28th of January 1881 he died. So I was tantalised by this idea of an unwritten memoir. Um, Having come to Dostoevsky like most people at first through his fiction and only later begun to learn about his life, I sometimes kind of glimpsed the ghost of an autobiography threaded through his writings. And this was a curiosity noted by Orest Miller who saw great value in subjective passages scattered throughout his novels. More recently, Kenneth Lance um, has also noticed that Dostoevsky exploited his biography for considerable literary power. He took considerable pains to let the aura of his life lend vibrancy to his art so the reader becomes aware of a region beyond the novel's story where the work seems to extend into a penumbra of textuality. So trying to re-attribute these subjective passages to a continuous timeline um, seemed like a fool's errand but it also seemed like great fun and besides I reasoned my publishers would never agree to it. So I sent them a proposal and to my continuing surprise, they told me to go ahead and get started. (laughs) So I I started work. Um, I started with the easy bits first. Certain of these autobiographical episodes are very well-known. You know, there's the first person description of a severe epileptic fit in the idiot, which his friend and uh, biographer Nikolai Strachov described as occurring specifically on Easter Eve 1863. Dostoevsky wrote of his mock execution to his brother immediately after the event. It was also quite clearly the inspiration for some relevant passages in The Idiot and the Brothers Karamazov. When he was two, he attended the local church with his mother to receive communion and saw a dove flying through one window of the cupola and out the other. It's a striking image that stayed with him until he wrote it into the adolescent in the last 10 years of his life. There's the taciturn, short-tempered father of Varvara's memory in Poor Folk, the famous story of the peasant array whose real name was we seem to glimpse his mother's death in Nezvanova. forgive my accent, I know Russian is terrible I'm afraid, <laughs> but that, as, as Yuri uh, was exploring earlier and actually his mother's epitaph um, appears in The Idiot you've got the impoverished sickly dreamers that correspond to his youth in Petersburg, uh, the chattering literary circles in the openings of devils and the adolescent and so on so there are, there are two books, winter notes on summer impressions and notes from the House of the Dead, which appear to correspond quite closely to real experiences. But Dostoevsky was, he, he intentionally complicates the veracity of these real life accounts. To put it another way, we see Dostoevsky treating himself as a fictional character. In House of the Dead, the arch narrator claims to have found the notes of a third party Alexander and this fictional Alexander goes on to narrate many of Dostoevsky's real experiences, albeit with, with names changed as we might now expect of non fictional on a sensitive subject such as criminality or medical cases. Later, Dostoevsky actually remarked that people sometimes thought he killed his first wife. Thankfully, that was Alexander's crime. In The Gambler, um, not soon after that, uh, we follow Alexei, the protagonist, as he cla- lays claim to bloodthirsty feelings about the fictional Polina that Dostoevsky never had the gall to address with the real Polina. Though here, he doesn't even bother to change her name. Now this this is art that interacts directly with life. The gambler, uh, we must remember it lives outside the world of paints, it's a debt payment. It's also a lover's justification. It was dictated in the wooing of Dostoevsky's second wife. In, in biography, the tendency is to treat time, the time physically spent drafting as a kind of lacuna in the author's life. Um, but the drafting really is life. It's countless hours in the world, placing thoughts contingent on the author's mood and circumstances. You know, how, might, how, how different might Raskolnikov's hunger pangs have been if they weren't drafted after three consecutive days without dinner, subsisting on tea and leaving the hotel every day at 3 p.m. so as not to alert the, the suspicious hotel staff. In this way life acts on literature and literature also acts on life, that's why we all bother with it. One of Dostoevsky's great masterpieces was Alyosha but the flaw of his creator was present in him from the start. Before he turned three years old Alyosha Dostoevsky died of his father's illness which was epilepsy. Now no parent wants to outlive their child And it's hard to imagine the grief. What can a person do with all that unspent love? And how might that young boy have changed the world by his presence? But the writer, of course, alone among mortals, has the power to resurrect. Dostoevsky visits his childhood haunts, and on his return, he writes Alyosha. We don't really know the narrator of the brothers Karamazov. We know almost nothing about him. One of the only things we know is that this young man, Alyosha Fyodorovich, is his hero. Our first instinct is to separate life and fiction. Um, we, We tend to compartmentalize them as real and unreal. But in the most literal sense, fiction comprises a succession of thoughts that the authors really had and which he or she has chosen to own or disown and to arrange in a manner that pleases. So it's an arra- an intentional arrangement of thoughts, you might say. When we tell our, our life story, we are mostly telling the truth, but we don't escape this patterning and this arrangement. We forget or brush past the inconvenient. What we find significant, we remember. We think in motifs and the self, uh, I believe, is the shorthand name we give to the most coherent version of our story. Traditionally, a literary biography is supposed to hold its subject at arm's length with a long-sighted scrutiny Um, it claims to be objective, it aims to say the definitive word. But such an approach would seem to contradict Dostoevsky's dialogic project. Like Helen Wendler, I believe that form is content as arranged and content is form as deployed. I decided to to honour Dostoevsky's own experience with narrative voice and tragicomedy, polyphony, You know, what might it look like to write a biography that had a a volatile or ambiguous relationship between its nature, uh, its narrator and its subject, uh, indeed, between life and fiction? In 1876, uh, Dostoevsky's narrator of A Gentle Creature explains that the story he's about to tell doesn't fit into an existing genre, so it's not a conventional short story, it's not even in the form of Zapiski or notes like House of the Dead or Notes from the Underground. The narrator is going to take us into the protagonist's head and describe to us thoughts that it would be impossible for the narrator to observe. He's going to present a stream of consciousness to us from within the character's skull. Uh, This is what the narrator says in this preface, the form is inconsistent, sometimes he talks to himself, sometimes he speaks to an invisible listener, some sort of judge, but that's always the way in real life. In that way, the form might seem fantastical, but the narrator explains that that's the only way to make it realistic in the highest degree. This is Dostoevsky pointing the way forward towards a new kind of writing that abandons formal strictures in pursuit of psychological truth. It reminded me of something quite telling uh, that Razumikhin says about the art of detection in Crime and Punishment. Uh, There's a whole new approach waiting to be discovered. The psychological data alone are enough to point to the real trail. We've got facts, they say, but facts aren't everything. Knowing how to deal with the facts is at least half the battle. So here, here is a story. A young boy plays an innocent game on his parents' estate called horses. The game involves uh, organizing surf children into teams and driving them along the country road. At 15, stopping at Tver on the way to St. Petersburg, this happy memory is poisoned the boy sees the government courier punching his driver in the back of the head, and the driver meeting out the same beating to the poor horse as it takes off for the city. Sometimes real life delivers the perfect metaphor that way. At 28, he's caught agitating for the emancipation of the serfs. He spends weeks in the back of a sled on his way to Siberia with nothing to do but watch the driver whip the horses as he contemplates his crime. In his four years in prison, many of the peasant prisoners submitted to floggings by government officers, some so severe that the victims die of their wounds. On his return from Siberia, he's at first refused permission to live in Petersburg, so he finds himself back in Tver. He thinks of the incident with the horse and the driver often in the following years. The underground man punches the driver in the back of the head and while while drafting crime and punishment, uh, Dostoevsky writes in a notebook, my first personal insult the horse, the courier. A virtuosic, nightmarish analog of the incident is then etched in Raskolnikov's dreams and again as a part of a deeper exploration of the problem of suffering in his masterpiece, The Brothers Karamasov, which, uh, you know, electrifies the reading public. Meanwhile, the writer finds a wife and they have a son who they name Fyodor after, their, after his father. And one Christmas around the time of year he was taken to Siberia, he buys the boy a toy horse and sleigh and little Fedger's delight is he's driving like the wind down the frozen river of his imagination until he falls into contented sleep around 5am. So the older Fyodor's trauma has found its perfect mirror in the little boy's happiness and it's a story so perfectly novelistic that people are still talking about it 150 years later.
0: Thank you. Wonderful place to end, thank you very much. Those were, those were three fascinating, very varied, very elegant talks. Um, I'm gonna hand straight over to um, Carol Emerson, Emeritus Professor of Russian at Princeton, the author of many books in the field of Russian literature from the 19th to 21st century, intellectual history, especially Bakhtin, but by no means only, and also a scholar of Russian opera and music. Um, Carol, thank you for being our discussant.
4: And thank you very much, Oliver. What I have are one question for each of our speakers and each of those questions involves something Bakhtin got wrong. First, Lynn on provocation, then Yuri on the unmanageable outsourced wounded self. And then finally, Alex on a reconstructed unwritten memoir. So to begin with, Lynn, the type of provocation that she attends to is provocation as a tool of the weak the dispossessed, the dispersed, a speaker that traps the opponent. The enemy ends up exposing itself. The whole point is to make it all public somehow and to create a third party that will judge. It turns out that the third parties inside the novels are sort of dummies, she says. It's really us on the outside, the reader. The dupe is us. And we are constantly being irritated and provoked. And this leads her to a conclusion that actually corresponds to something Yuri also said this morning, this evening, (laughs) that it feels somehow natural to the media saturated modern person to be constantly provoked, constantly irritated, that we are all terrorized in this strange sort of post 9-11 way that something's going to threaten us from without if we don't protect ourselves from that without, then we will ourselves disintegrate and flee. Now, both Lynn and Yuri have a problem with the particular type of outsideness that Bakhtin represents. What Lynn suggested, and I think she's correct, is that Bakhtin is conflict averse. A lot of people punch each other out, but it's all done carnivalistically and therefore ethnic, eth- sort of anesthetized, and she claims that Bakunin's destructive sort of truth-seeking fits a Dostoevskyan novel better than Bakhtin's dialogic construction of truth, and that is because, according to Lynn, true truths cannot stand. Bakhtin would not agree with that. Two truths do stand in his world. In fact, the only truth that we know is a truth that comes into existence for ourselves when some other truth confronts it from the outside. And that's because for Bhaktin, truth is an energy. It's not an essence or a substance. It does not provide answers and it does not eliminate answers. What it does is gather all the potential answers together in something that is called great time. So here's my question to Lynn. Is provocation, as you understand it, designed to reveal multiple truths? What creative resources does a provoked but conflict-averse person have to bring to the table? This is also a great transition to Yuri. Now, like Lynn, Yuri is interested in Dostoevsky now, and if Khatik's thesis is we can read Dostoevsky profitably by understanding how we're all terrorized, provoked, agitated, irritated, and social media helps us to do that. We can all be indiscriminately intimate with everybody else on these platforms. And Yuri, too, begins with intimacy, but he's more low-tech, the way Bakhtin and Dostoevsky were. He claims that Dostoevsky was not a novelist of ideas or even of moral justice. He's a psychologist of trauma. And what do wounded people do? They look around and find an external soul to whom they can outsource the agency of the self and the whole world becomes their wound. They'll do anything but confront this wounded part of themselves, these psychic fugitives. They're desperate for diversions. So how to sedate the depths? How to continue to keep myself in the shallows? How to somehow silence the God that's howling within us? My question to Yuri, you said that there's never been a study of Dostoevsky's theory of the unconscious or theory of the self, however much Freud and Nietzsche learned from it. So what would such a study look like? And now my question to Alex. In his back matter acknowledgments, he says, I'm a storyteller, not a specialist. And one of the ways the story gets told is to backstitch fiction into the life in italics. It's quite a marvelous technique. I think it's true that you have to talk to yourself somewhat if you are going to create a second consciousness out of your primary authorial consciousness. But according to Bakhtin, that's not possible. You can't get an image on yourself. If you look at yourself and talk to yourself, he would say all of our images come from outside. So my big question for you, Alex, in terms of Dostoevsky and love and all that unspent love that he wasn't able to dedicate to himself and to his family, what's he in love with? The possibility of fame, that was the early scenarios with Nekrasov several women, Maria Suslova, Anna Grigorievna, his beloved second wife, Pushkin and Gogol, he's in love with them, he's in love with gambling, he's in love with the family, with small children especially, and what you suggested at the very end of your comments just now, he's in some strange way in love with life itself. So what was that life? Was it what Paul Fung has recently called the epileptic mode of being? That is always a headache, always irritated, always being provoked, always having seizures and loving life lived on the brink.
0: Terrific. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Um, I think I'll give you the chance to take the questions in in the order in which they were posed to, to, to to give you all the same amount of time to think about your answers. So over to you, Lynn, please.
2: Um, So Carol, um, the question that you've asked, uh, what you are responding to is sort of the most recent sentence I have written um, about the two, uh, the last man standing, and therefore it's a very tentative sentence, Um, but I, I think that it is true that if it's too extreme to say that another's truth is destroyed, right? Um, it is not true, it is not too extreme to say that another's truth is diminished um, in, in, in the process of um, this self-exposure, right? That, that we see it's the fallibility of this truth and I, I, I'm thinking of the question I always ask my students is, the question I always ask them is, who is right? How do we know who is right? Who does Dostoevsky think is right? You know. And I know that in history, some famous readers of Dostoevsky have gotten it wrong and thought that he was advocating the Grand Inquisitor's position. But mo- most of the students get it right. Um, And so I think that um, although, yes, um, using the destruction, I I think I'm trying to really here emphasize the agonistic nature of this conflict and that many, uh, much of the time, the intentional state, the intention of the provocateur is precisely to destroy the other's truth and the other's um, identity, um, and to replace it with their own right with their own construction. So I, I do think that what that is what we see going on. But then how the reader comes in and evaluates that, and whether we hear this multiplicity still. Yes, but I think it's um, the quiet, then it becomes like a second voice, a, qu- a voice that's there, and we remember it, you know, um, but it has been demoted, certainly, um, in its exposure. So I guess that's the provisional answer I'll give you, and I will go back to the desk to work on that more.
1: So, uh, and like, Uh, With Lynn, your question is exactly what I'm thinking about at the moment, is this question about Dostoevsky as a psychologist and what does his psyche look like. And uh, just before I say that, I do think Dostoevsky is a novelist of ideas, but just ideas as symptomatology in the sense Mm -hmm. that, you know, that that it is very much about ideas, but that what kinds of ideas are we afflicted with uh, is the kind of it it comes from the ground uh, just underneath uh, consciousness. And and what's interesting about Dostoevsky, like I think Dostoevsky is so important, you know, Dostoevsky at two hundred, he's more important than ever, I think, in the post psychoanalytic age. If we are in a post psychoanalytic age, we don't really have any models for understanding the depths anymore. I see the kids in my, you know, not the kids, the adults in my undergraduate classes, and for them, it's just darkness. You know, there's like I have anxiety, anxiety howling out from some dark hallway. I don't know what to do with it, but I think the, my only option is really to medicate it into oblivion. Um, and I think that this was you know Dostoevsky thought about this a lot and especially in terms of modern psychology because his pre-moderns you know he always wrote it in his diary of a, of a writer about how you know Tatiana Lana is grounded, she has memories, she's in touch with those sources. Evgenia is not, uh, you know, that's what, and so the modern, it's really the modern that, that struggles, you know, and, and Jung said the modern doesn't, the pre-modern doesn't need psychoanalysis, it's the modern, it's the one with the miasmal swamp in the soul. So I think that Dostoevsky, actually, if we look at him from this perspective, he gives us a kind of gradually developing theory of the unconscious over the course of his novels. You know, if you start with, you know, I mentioned Raskolnikov up in his room and there's the howling from the staircase, that's like most students of mine. You know, and I have a bit of anxiety myself. I can relate, right? There's a howling from within. You want to close the door. You want it to stop. Svidrigailov also in a closet at the end of the novel in his pre-suicidal state leaves the room, unlike Raskolnikov, goes out into the darkness. There's a figure alive in the darkness. He wants to send it back to sleep, but it won't go back to sleep. It's laughing at him. He goes and kills himself. That thing rising out from the dark, its you can't face it. Not if you're Svidrigal, if you don't have the tools. If you go into the idiot, he's going now into the dark building that is the, not just this kind of dark interiority. That's Mushkin at the end of the novel. This is the collective interiority of the whole civilization there's a dead christ in there somewhere this is Rasco, this is ragosian's house and it's pure darkness all the windows are closed and he goes in there and he sees a dead body that's what we have within us as moderns there's a dead body rotting in the depths of us and that's maybe the memory of the christ you know the dead our murder of christ whatever it is it's haunting there and we want to cut it off and the whole point, you know, as Alyosha says to, to Ivan, he says that the religious life means to resurrect your dead who have perhaps never died. So that's, I think, Dostoevsky's depth theology. There's a there's a corpse in there. We want to escape it to enter into the external world, stay forever in this kind of shallow uh, place where we just, you know, parasitize off others. But the work is to go in and bring it to life. And that's what we do in the humanity. I think it's a case for the humanities. That's what we're doing. This is this, there's these memories that are constantly... Under, you know, and there's people who are saying we shouldn't have these, we shouldn't keep these memories alive. They're wrong. They're, they're you know, they're all kinds of, uh, in all these kinds of ways, we should forget them. There's something in there that for Dostoevsky needs to be brought back to life. And if you see with Alyosha finally, when he goes past the, 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 the body and he goes through the scraps of thought in his dream into the depths, what's interesting is that unlike Mushkin, whose psyche is just a dark room with a, bu- a fly buzzing around, he's a modern, like most of us. Alyosha has been raised on these images of the New Testament, and that's the landscape of his psyche. So for Dostoevsky, it's about cultivating culture, religious culture, so that your your psyche could have a landscape, which would make it possible for you to make that journey back into the depths. Otherwise, who wants to walk into a dark room with dead bodies in it? Nobody. Nobody's going to do that work. And that's why I think for Dostoevsky that religious culture and the preservation of that culture was so crucial otherwise we'll all be condemned to this kind of shallow external space forever. Um, Anyway but this you know that's just kind of a
3: preliminary answer. Um, So uh, to to come to the question of uh, what's Dostoevsky in in love with, uh, in, in love with yes very many things and I think uh, in love with the with the world at large, uh, sometimes despite himself. I think I think you're absolutely right. Quite early on, he he really wants to be at the heart of literature, and I think there is a there in his youth. There's a kind of element of vanity to that. You know, there's this kind of amazing re- letter he writes to his older brother uh, just after Poor Folk's going to be published, and he's just basically He he spends about three pages saying my fame couldn't get greater. Every time I see something new. People just fall over themselves. If I told Turgenev one of my ideas, it will be all over Petersburg tomorrow. And and I, you know, it's hard to read that letter and and not see, uh, you know, an excited youngster who's who's, dreamt of being part of this of this literary culture. But more and more, I mean, it, it's tempting to see it as a kind of a pure binary turn across his time in Siberia. But more, I think, more and more, um, as he works on on literature, I think he realizes quite how. Uh, unfulfilling that that sort of recognition uh, can be and he, he seems to to sort of begin to see literature as a means only towards a, a greater end I think he it, it's easy to forget that he participates in politics as a you know effectively as, as someone who's kind of agitating himself um, he starts a journal he edits another uh, he he takes on the writer's diary um, with that kind of explicit purpose in mind of of trying to put himself at the, at the centre of the national conversation, because he wants to, to steer uh, the culture towards orthodox ideals. I, I think also he sees um, uh, you um, picking up on children as a, as a really important part of how he sees the world, that they're really the ultimate safeguard for him. It, you know, he's asking for something to be arranged, which is, is a kind of Christian revolution that he, believes might not be lived up to in his time and um and so children become the the ultimate safeguard you know if it's not our generation then it's up to them Uh, but but he did have a kind of millenarian streak which i I think he 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 genuinely believed sincerely that um this was something that was going to happen in the near future um you know there were there were third person accounts of him uh working at the citizen and, and turning to the secretary and slamming his fist on the table and saying, you know, people, people talk about the devil as if he's not real. The devil is here and he's started work. <laughs> he, he hallucinated him at a party and, and was pretty sure he'd stroked his tail. Um, so this is something that's, that's not metaphorical, I think, for Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, to, to continue with that project, I think to, he had to feel a sense of urgency uh, as a human being to, to, to kind of feel the existential urgency, and, and he worked always from a position of instability, so I think he had to feel everything was at stake and that uh, that probably was one of the things that motivated, for instance, the obsession with roulette.
0: Thank you, thank you all. Um... I suppose one thing Dostoevsky, one person Dostoevsky certainly was in love with is Christ, which perhaps is where Carol was headed with the question, I'm not quite sure, but it, it makes me think, Yuri, if your, if your account is correct, where where does that leave readers, the many readers who turn to Dostoevsky who, who, who may not be Christian, um, and where, what kind of support they, they nevertheless find through his, through his fiction, um, and of course the provocative aspect of, of, of Christ's message would, would also speak to Lynn's topic, but um, I don't want to Put, put my own questions forward for, for answer because we've only we're running out a bit of time for about fifteen minutes and I'd very much like to take questions from um, from our audience. Um, if you could use the hand function, please, so that I can uh, see you. That.